Hello and welcome back to another EMJ podcast. I'm Simon Carley, one of the associate editors, and I'm delighted to be joining you here in April for another edition of the journal. And no April Fools this year. I once did publish an EMJ article on April Fools called Scouting Out Competences. If you ever want to go and have a look at it, interesting paper. It was a spoof paper on whether or not we should have badges on our uniforms to say which skills we had. I thought it was ridiculous, but I actually got letters from people saying, that's a really good idea, we should do that. And then we had workplace-based assessments and competencies and portfolios. So who knows what we'll get in this month's journal. Well, it's not April Fool's, it's proper serious stuff in the EMJ as usual. Another great issue for April. And this month's primary survey was done by Mary Dowood. Now, we're going to kick off with ideas and thoughts around organ donation in the ED. And this is something which... Well, I think we need to think really hard about about whether or not we can do this and whether we can do it better. I'm married to a transplant surgeon, so I, I recognise the tremendous importance of organ donation and tissue donation. But it's it's a difficult, sensitive and daunting conversation to take place in the ED when somebody's died. The circumstances of that conversation means that it's usually occurring subsequent to breaking bad news of death or imminent death. And broaching the subject of organ donation can seem ill-timed, insensitive, and it's difficult for even the most skilled clinicians, which I think is why it puts people off. Even so, it's a core competency in emergency medicine, as is the management of patients in the final stages of life. And we have a duty as healthcare professionals to explore this potential that can save other people's lives or dramatically change the quality of their life. So in the UK in 2015 to 2016, They had a record number of organs donated and transplanted, but the consent rate is still one of the lowest in Europe. At the end of 2015, there were nearly 7,000 people waiting for a transplant. 429 died whilst waiting and a further 807 were removed from the list, most likely due to deteriorating health. And that's despite ongoing teaching of ED staff and expert support from specialist nurses. Opportunities for organ donation can still be lost in the urgency and fast pace of the ED, as well as the perceived difficulty in managing the logistics of donation before death or donation after circulatory death. Outcomes from donation before death are better, but an ongoing shortage of organs is seeing the reintroduction of a long abandoned practice of donation after circulatory death. This month's issue includes a very informative paper by Gardner and colleagues, along with a commentary by Bernard Foy, who's one of my colleagues in Manchester, who is absolute super chap, who knows a huge amount about organ donation. Um, He's an ICU stroke EM physician, and he he works with families and and other people. He's just such such a nice man and has done some amazing work improving organ donation locally. So Gardner's paper describes the current transplantation practice in the UK, together with the associated legal and ethical difficulties and the classification of deceased donors and future developments promising greater numbers of organs, which is good. Bernard's commentary discusses withdrawal of life and the case for delay. So it's one of those subjects which is really is a must read for us. And I think as an ED senior, an ED clinician in training, it's important that we remind ourselves of the potential to change lives. I mean, it's enormous potentially. And the urgency for organ donation is perhaps greater than ever as we live longer and we have better technologies to to support and deliver transplantation. And if you know anybody who's been affected by transplantation, you'll know absolutely what an incredible life-changing event it can be for them. That takes us over to issues of money. 
And we have problems, don't we, with money? And containing the ever-increasing costs of healthcare is both a challenge and a necessity for all health economies. And we're constantly reminded by those money masters around us that we have to find more effective and more cost-effective ways of delivering care. In the minds of many clinicians, cheap consumables often equate to poorer quality. So it's pretty interesting to read a paper this month by Rigutzi et al. from San Francisco comparing the cost of commercially produced ultrasound gel, which is relatively expensive, with an alternative cornstarch-based gel. They found that the cornstarch-based gel costs less than 10 cents a bottle, produced images of similar quality to those from commercial gels, which cost about $5. That's a big difference. Considering the amount of jelly we use, it's a big difference. And... We're using ultrasound all over the place and including in, in quite low resource settings where you don't have access to things like CT so easily. And that's potentially for quite a tidy sum to be made. And have a think. Next time you're just squirting jelly over somebody, have a think about whether or not it's the right thing to be doing and whether or not we could be using our healthcare dollars more sensibly. Then we go over to a paper on sepsis. It's obviously a big topic in emergency medicine and there's lots and lots of effort going into um, sepsis management which is good and in a way we could think that life-saving treatment for sepsis is relatively straightforward and we could save so many more lives if treatment was started in a timely way it's therefore an ongoing concern that so many people still die from sepsis every year and the numbers when you look at them are pretty frightening the difficulty, of course, is spotting this condition as soon as a patient presents so that we need to ask whether our triage systems are sophisticated enough to do that. So Graf and colleagues in this month's EMJ in Germany looked at the Manchester triage system to assess its effectiveness in identifying septic patients. And they found that the MTS, Manchester Triage Score, has some weaknesses with respect to priority in patients with sepsis and that discriminators for identifying systemic infection are insufficiently considered. It's interesting, the, the MTS is widely used and similar versions are around. So we need to have a think about triage systems and how we can improve detection of sepsis. But um, I declare a conflict of interest here, of course, I, I work in Manchester. It's always a tricky thing when you look at whether or not triage systems are identifying specific diseases. Because the purpose of a triage system is to rate the urgency, in the ED at least, of how quickly that patient needs to be seen. And that's not the same as whether they need admission or whether they die or whether they have any specific complaint. So when we look at triage systems, we just need to be cautious that we're not actually testing one system against something which it was never really designed to do. So have a think about that. Keep that in mind. Have a read of the paper. It's quite interesting. Back to weights again next. We're all interested in weighing patients. And you remember that last month we had a paper looking at the estimation of weight in children. And... It seems to be a big issue for, for a lot of people and some EDs now even have high specification trolleys that are built in scales for the patients. I've seen these in Burns units in the past but I've not had experience of using them myself. And most of us won't. Most of us have probably ne wor never really worked with that level of sophistication and we often estimate patients' weights in the emergency situation not terribly good at it. And it's a bit of a concern when using time-critical drugs that require precise dosing according to weight. So it was an interesting paper in this month's issue from Catamol et al. and colleagues in the UK that aimed to develop and validate an accurate method for estimating weight in all age groups using mid-arm circumference. Interesting. They derived a simplified method of mid-arm circumference based weight estimation from a linear regression equation. Oh, here we go. Weight in kilograms equals four times the MAC in centimetres minus 50. Actually, 
most formulas that come out of linear regression? That's a pretty easy one. Even I could probably remember that. And you could certainly have it on an app. And they found that that formula is at least as precise in adults and adolescents as commonly used paediatric weight estimation tools in children. And the authors advised that a gender-specific model would improve precision, but this would require a tape or a smartphone. So the study is well worth a read as a more accurate way of estimating weight is to be welcomed, especially as we get rising obesity levels. And that means we've got to be a little bit more careful about estimating weights. I think as an aside, um, I've always been an advocate of just weigh them. So, I mean, if you can weigh the patient, then do so. So estimates are great, but unless there's a really good reason why you can't actually physically weigh the patient, then just get on and do it. So MAC could be a good thing for the patient who can't get off the trolley or too heavy to lift. But if you can weigh the patient, do so. So lastly, we're going to have a look at the adaptive design of clinical trials in the ED. And if you've been involved in research in the past, I'm sure many of you will be, you'll know that conducting and sustaining clinical trials in the ED can be really difficult for a whole variety of different reasons. I mean, one reason it may relate to the fixed nature of the designs that are traditionally used in ED trials, where conduct and analysis are outlined at the outset and not really examined until the end. And that's pretty typical, really. And it's actually what a lot of funding and ethics groups look for. So it's difficult to move away from that. But the fixed design may, in many instances, take too long and be both costly to patients and staff. So maybe we need to consider alternative ways of doing this in the ED. It might be more effective and it might be more conducive to the environment that we have to work in. So in this issue, Flight et al. have hypothesized that the majority of published EM trials have the potential to use a simple adaptive trial design where you do a planned interim analysis and you factor that in to determine whether the study should be stopped or modified before recruitment is complete. Their study interestingly looked at clinical trials published in three emergency medicine journals between January 2003, December 2013. And they found, that interestingly, that 188 trials only 19 were considered to have used an adaptive trial design, but a total of 154 out of 165 that were fixed in design had the potential to use an adaptive design. So I think this is really interesting. And I've been involved in a number of trials now where they do use an adaptive design. And I think it's really important that we consider this. For anybody grappling with the challenges of clinical trials in ED, definitely worth a read and have a look. So that's April. I hope you have a wonderful month. It's spring here in the UK and we're starting to see the flowers come out of the ground and the blossom on the trees and the long nights are behind us. We're looking forward to a fantastic 2017 and a lovely year with EMJ. Enjoy your emergency medicine, go out there and heal the sick. <laughs>